What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Emily Haynes of Metric. Emily, good to have you on the podcast. Hi there, Bob. So I can see you in a studio, but where are you? New York, Toronto, wherever? I'm in a rural hamlet. Okay, rural hamlet. There's a lot of them. Rural hamlet, Canada, <laughs> United States. Yeah, it's in Canada. It's just outside Toronto. And is that where you spend most of your time these days? Um, now that the world has come back to a certain degree, I'm back in it. Um, but uh, certainly for the making of music and the living of life, I do love a rural hamlet. So what is inspirational about a rural hamlet? I just, the lack of a town, which means less of the usual things that humans bring to everything, which is politics. Like I love how we separate out politics as though it's something separate. It's all of life. So because there's no town, there's none of that. And it's rolling hills and rivers. And I always see like little foxes and I see turtles and frogs and deer and, you know, rabbits. And every day, certainly at this time of year, it's a completely different landscape in terms of blooming. I have all these wildflowers that just do their thing. Even the weeds, you know, milkweed, I'm down with it. You know, the butterflies need it. Uh, so that's why I like a rural Hamlet. So what inspires you in terms of your creative work, your writing? I'm so glad you added something to that sentence because that was big. Um, in terms of the work, uh, I feel that it's over the years become quite clear that it's almost a, I would feel it's a balanced combination of these things, which is at this point, a deep loyalty and commitment to my band 
and which is they're my family. Um, so I'm inspired by the idea, just the idea of us um, following through on our ideas and visions um, is now like deeply motivating and inspiring. Um, the people who listen to it, I'm inspired by them because I still can't believe, even though there's so much cynicism, I just still feel incredibly fortunate to exist in someone's mind. I know it's hot real estate these days. Um, and I feel pretty, pretty chuffed and lucky that my music makes it into people's lives and soundtracks. So I'm, I'm inspired to like continue providing that service to people. Um, and then there's just the craft itself, uh, which keeps me busy as every songwriter will tell you who's obsessed. Um, it's just a fascinating craft. Um, the fact that you have 88 keys and the incredible amount of things that can come out of just these 88 keys, you know, and I only write in one language and I even still feel like there's so much to be done. Um, and definitely like driven by a sense of my legacy to my father, who was just like such a great, strange poet um, with such a love of language and the idea, the feeling when you get an insight sort of encapsulated in to something so concise and beautiful as he would do. So those are the things that keep me going. Well, let me be very specific. Some people, they walk down the street, they look at the people, it inspires them for ideas. Other people watch TV, other people read books or magazines, other people just live their regular life and inspiration hits them whenever, like in the shower or driving a car. In terms of writing music itself, how do you begin the process? Uh, I feel like I'm kind of always in it. Um, you don't want to get too far. But, uh, and I know what you mean, like that distinction between sort of like principles that you live your life by, which is sort of more what I just gave you. Um, but in terms of like when things strike, it's kind of an odd sensation. Like I'll kind of be doing something. It doesn't really matter what or where and I'll... I'll sense that, you know, um, something might be getting clear. And that's why I have pianos. I never really have a piano like too far away from me. I have one on each floor of my house, um, <laughs> just in case. And I've, I just am always amazed by the feeling because you can't, you know, it's a humble thing, right? It's like, you know, so much is on the cutting room floor, but um, it'll just be like this weird sensation and I'll go to the piano and usually it's just like, you know, it's just gibberish and it's those same I mean, there's only so many chords, right? But the strangest thing when things coalesce in this odd order, um, which I do find mostly inspired by the natural world, the way you see it play out, uh, where things have such symmetry, but there's no way that you could stage that um, or force that. But so I usually record immediately. As soon as I kind of have that sense, I just sit down, I just start recording. And, you know, lots of it's nothing. And some of it... Um, I'll listen, I'll listen back quite immediately. And it's almost like, this is a super old school thing, but like you need to take a pencil and rub like a piece of paper over a nickel and it would like show the form of the nickel. It feels like that. Like I, like what was gibberish, I can hear the whole thing. And then, and then I'm like, okay, well now I have something. And then that's just the beginning. And then it has to go through this like tough love uh, process to make it on a metric record, but that's sort of how it begins. Okay, let's go back to something you said earlier. Your father, your father was a poet. Tell us about that. 
Uh, Paul Haynes, Vassar, Michigan, um, football star and secret poet. Uh, served in the Korean War, didn't see battle, but he, because he could type, had the job of typing up the leaves of absences for soldiers, which is, I think, such a great job to have. So, of course, he did everything he could to fabricate as many as possible, I'm sure. Um, and then as a result of the, G- the GI Bill, uh, which maybe you're familiar with. Uh, Absolutely. He, incredible and for those who may not be that you know if you serve in the army it pays for your college yeah but in which is for sure the correct succinct uh, version of it but in the case of someone like my father um from a small town in michigan he it was a passport to the world for him so he in his travels um got to build upon some of his early discoveries of jazz um in flint michigan and driving to detroit he was he would go and record um, musicians playing jazz. Well, 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 let's go a little bit slower. So your father was in the military, and before that he went to college and he was a football player. Do I have the order right? You do. The football player was deeply high school, and I'm picturing okay. the photo of him I have. Yeah. Uh, j- just so I understand, did he go to uh, Korea before or after he went to college? After he went to uh, Miami, yeah, University of Miami. Okay, so he already graduated from Miami when he went into the service. I think that's right. And then while he was there, he was able to build upon his love of jazz, which is where he met Michel Contat, this, uh, who is, ended up, was a writer about Sartre. My father had all these interactions with this world. Wait, 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 wait. These things just don't happen. I know. How did he get from <laughs> Korea to interact with all these people and they aren't necessarily, you know, around the corner in Michigan. I don't, this is, and this is, uh, you know, it's funny with speaking with you, Bob, because I know that you love uh, a detailed conversation and it's hard with a question about my father because we really could have a whole separate, I, I feel like there should be an episodic series on the life of Paul Haynes. So I, I'm more than happy to sort of direct my, my tale, but uh, as much as I can, because we could. There's a lot. Um, well, then let me the, let me be. Let, yeah. Let's go back to the way you were saying it. So sure. he's out of the army and he's traveling around, getting these influences. Just give us a little bit of the story you know as it's been told to you. Yeah, the mythology and the family. Um, so then, you know, he comes back to the United States, having had these experiences. He meets my mother in New York City, um, introduced by a friend. And there they get a loft in Soho in the early, I guess that would have been the late 50s, early 60s. We can check all my timelines. Um, He shared a loft with Michael Snow, the Canadian artist, uh, times where they would share like going back and forth between each other's cold water lofts, as they called them, I guess, because they had no hot water. And then in that time, as I understand it, he met Carla Blay, the composer, and they started up an incredible creative relationship where he would write these librettos, these lyrics for her work, the most uh, known of which uh, was the culmination of work he did when my mother and father were in India. Their travels took them to New Mexico and to India. So they had me in New Delhi, and in that time, my father was writing what became the libretto for Carla Blay's Escalator Over the Hill. Um. And then, so my childhood was imbued with not only the story as I've tried to tell it up till now, uh, but this actual music and the incredible life force that is Carla Blay. 
Um, and there were all of these other tentacles that my father had through mixtapes that he made that he sent. You know, one of my favorites is uh, Evan Parker, the incredible saxophonist who performed at my father's memorial, connecting him with Robert Wyatt um, from Soft Machine, who my father would make tapes for. And then when I was a young woman coming up writing songs, I would send my songs to Robert and he would send me back postcards and give me guidance. And yeah, but all of this in this like non-celebrity, you know, my parents are teachers, right? My father is a French teacher. Um, Okay. Just when you're, when you're, when, when your father is in New York and when he's in India, is he teaching? Is that how he's paying the bills? Yeah, I I can't I don't know if he was teaching in New York. Um I know that in India he worked for the International School. Um and I have his he got an award for endurance which I look at a lot in softball um from the embassy <laughs> in New Delhi. I don't know what the story is there but I just I love his like I'm obsessed with this idea of the athlete poet. Like this is my calling is to hopefully master the hybrid more than he did because in the end his body succumbed to his mind if you know what I mean he was so such an intellectual that I just feel like if he was able to stay with the part of him that was an athlete we wouldn't have lost him so young um how old was he how old was he when he passed yeah he was 70 okay and are you athletic yourself I am I am even more so now as a result my brother and sister and I all of us are pretty fired up but he passed away on my 30th just before my 30th birthday on the day that we finished world world underground our first album so as a the torch was handed very dramatically he died very suddenly so um but what a cool life i mean endlessly inspiring and his i feel like you'd appreciate um his writing actually like, okay can but- i tell you can i tell you one let me just give you one sure sure you'll you'll love this so um i think so an example of Paul Haynes' poem is this. Um, poem's called Practicing Safe Emotion. Practicing Safe Emotion. It was the back of his chair she rubbed. That's all. But those things, you know, you'll be walking around doing your thing, you're vacuuming. You think about that stuff, you know? He's like, these observations are so beautiful or something, but also like the least commercial thing that's ever been thought of probably um okay i'm just i'm (laughs) i'm interested in your own pursuit of athleticism as half of your life uh the creative intellectual part being the other half well i think it's funny when you think you know when you're a kid how we get we get you know it gets decided right in in school at some point um if you're a jock or you're theater kid or you're whatever else all the categories right it's usually, you know, it's either the life of the mind or the life of the body. And I think that it's took me a long time to realize that I really am both. And the only way I'm going to be able to do what I want to do is to have my my body be part of my mind and both, you know, can't just live in your mind. You got to, the music is like, it's, it's through you. Um, so, you know, and there's also like a practical reality of metric shows I mean, it's great. It's a self-fulfilling thing, but a metric show demands cardio. And because a metric show demands cardio, then I have to do it. And it kind of all, it's part of my plan. (laughs) Okay. 
So cardio would imply that you work out, but also, uh, are you a runner, a hiker, a skier, or any of that, or is it your physicality mostly about working in the gym? I don't work in the gym. I run. And so how often do you run? As much as I want to. I have this joy-based approach. Um, my sister-in-law and, and my brother are both uh, marathon runners, but they're so chill about it and it's really inspiring. I'm not remotely on their level. Um, but you know, some people get so addicted and it becomes like everything else in life that you've just basically ruined it for yourself. So for me, um, I, I feel like the formula is like, I have to come to it with joy. I have to come to it genuinely wanting to do it. Um, and then once I'm in, um, then it's every day because you just want to, it's like a body scan of really amazement when I, you know, think of myself jumping off speaker stacks into crowds or just even living in a, on a tour bus or like, you know, the occupational hazards of being a musician, just running and being like, oh my God, everything works. Nothing hurts. How is this possible? You know? And I know that as time progresses, there will be obstacles, but at this point in my life, incredibly I'm out on the trail and the river's running by me and I, nothing hurts. So I do it as much for that reason, you know. Okay, let's go back. You're born in New Delhi. Do you have any memories of New Delhi and how does the family end up in Canada? They left when I was three. Um, I don't. I feel like it's that thing where you have pictures in your head that are the photographs you saw. But um, they got work in Canada as teachers um, I think it was, again, through Michael Snow and Joyce Wheeland, who uh, my mother is a visual artist, and Joyce Wheeland was a tragically overlooked, in my opinion, artist. She's the wife of Michael Snow, who's very famous in Canada, but she did like almost like Tracy Emin-style like fabric work, really cool stuff ahead of her time. But I believe they helped, um, along with, um, that's right, Zalman from... The Loving Spoonful. Zalianowski. How did your yeah, father know you Zalianowski? I mean, honestly, you might know as well as I do. I, I don't, I have to ask my mom. I can't remember how, but it was just, you know, you're growing up, you're like, oh yeah, of course you're pals with him. Um, and I, and I have seen the letters where my dad wrote and said, hey guys, um, any word of work, you know, and obviously at that time it was um, not related to anything to do with military service, but the previous Trudeau, obviously Pierre Trudeau is really opening the borders to people. A lot of people were coming in the 70s. So this was 76. Um, so wait, so I was two or three, whatever, 76, something like that. Um, and uh, Zal, I think, I think maybe he was the one who found, sent my dad like a clipping that some remote school in the north, um, you know, deep snow uh, was looking for teachers and they applied they got they my dad got a job immediately i guess so my poor brother and sister went from you know being in india to being in you know snow up to your neck and the quintessential haynes family photograph is i'm a baby and they're all, we're all standing in front of this sign that says like no food or fuel north of this point it's just like snow up to your ears and you know they were adventurers i think that was their love story okay so how long were you in that area or did you move to the city? Uh, well, the family st sort of stayed there um, north in and around. Uh, but I, when I was 15, moved to Toronto. 
okay. to go to an art okay, school. Just, you know, because we got a lot of Americans listening who are not uh, Canadian savvy. Where exactly is this in Canada? Um, well, I do value my privacy, Bob. So it's north. No, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I'm of, just talking north of Toronto. I, yeah. Okay, no, no. I'm talking about where you grew up with your parents. Yeah. Where all that it's snow. Like, oh, so it's north. It's it's within close driving distance of Toronto that you grew up. The first place that they that they landed was Smooth Rock Falls, which I don't remember. And, and then just they, just where is that? Is that north? It's north like, of it's Toronto. Like, Five minutes, like five hundred miles. I think so it's like that's five far. hours. Yeah, I, I should also full disclosure. I'm really bad with like, and believe me, I get mocked for this of having a band called Metric and being like, I can't measure anything. Like, I'm not trying to, you know. I'm like, how far is it? I'm like, I don't know. Am I measuring it in time? You know, my brother's like, how big? Is, how big is it? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, okay, if you hold two albums up, is it two albums? Is it one? <laughs> so just so you know, that's why I'm extra sketchy on those. Uh, Okay. The miles, so you, kilometers. You're living far <laughs> from civilization. You come to Toronto at 15, but prior to being 15, are you out in the boonies? No, they moved to this other town that was more like weird and the kind of place that you want to probably get out of quickly. And if you wanted to get in your car and drive to Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, how long does that take? It's a couple hours to Toronto. Okay. So you're growing up. Do you have a perception that your parents are outsiders, bohemians? Or are they just teachers and you're a regular kid in the, in the town? Um, yeah, I, I think I, I, yeah, I felt the weirdness. Um, but it took a while cause I just was having such a good time. Like we had this huge backyard and you know, it's that thing where you're a kid and you don't realize that you don't have any money. And then it's like later, I'm like, oh, weird. They, you know, we were taking the washing to the dryer in the laundromat because it broke and they couldn't fix it. Or, you know, it's like, right, this is a bohemian situation. But I was just, the house was full of all these like crazy, beautiful pieces from India and their travels and books and music. And we were having a good time. And, um, but yeah, I remember there being a story about one of the neighbors saying, because my parents had friends over, probably um, uh, Michael Snow and Joyce Wheeland came out from the city and they had quite a few garbage bags out, I guess. And then the rumor was that my parents were having orgies. <laughs> so it was, and I remember also my mom, bless her, had to do some supply teaching at some point, which I don't know if it's still the case for kids now of how this works in schools where you'd have to wheel a cart through. Are you, did you ever have that? We so didn't have that where I grew up. Yeah, so in this school, and I believe it was because she was supply teaching French, and again, I'd love to do a whole other conversation with you about French and English in Canada. Fascinating amount of um, sort of dissonance between the two languages, sadly, you know, where no one wants to go to French class, and my father's the French teacher who's like, but I've been in Paris, you would love it, you know, takes all these kids to Paris, and they're like, oh, it is cool to teach French. Uh, she and so she's being a supply teacher in French, and no one wants to take French. So they make you wait, wait, wheel wait, wait. a cart in. I'm an American. Are we referring to home economics? I don't know what supply teacher is. So it's, no, a supply teacher is like a substitute teacher. Which oh, the word the oh. word doesn't really make sense. It's true, substitute teacher. Okay. Um. So yes, this is all just in relation to did I know my parents were weird? Was I remember my mom wore like really bright stockings, and everyone just lost it. Like they were like, this cannot be like, you know, they're probably red or something. And I was in maybe the fifth grade or something like that. 
Um, so later, I, I and obviously now with time, I'm like, oh my God, these people lived, these guys are legends. They did such cool stuff. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. You know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at VisitCalifornia.com. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, so you're in the house living with very artistic people. The, they Is it totally freeform, run free, do whatever you want? Is it, no, you have to take piano lessons? No, you have to watch public television? What's it like growing <laughs> up in the house? Well, you know, it's and it's funny how much things have changed because, I mean, I'm only 48, but the, you know, we had two channels. So there wasn't a lot of having to control what you watched because, and then there was like a really big deal when we got the box that you could press the buttons to watch TV. Right. But even then, you know, that was not something that could even be restricted. Um, I did rem- discover early in terms of chores and stuff that if I said that I had an idea that I wanted to play on the piano, cause I picked it up really young. If I said that I could get out of doing the dishes. And I think that may have sort of defined my choices made a big, that was a big revelation of like, I see how this works. If I'm at the piano, maybe I can get away from the mundane. And would it be the type of thing where everybody's doing their own thing or you sit for dinner with the whole family and you have discussions and they pull things out of you? Yeah, we would always uh, sit for dinner. That was that was definitely a thing. And in the morning, because we you know, everyone's getting up at the same time, um, my mom, when she was working, was the teacher as well. My dad would play the craziest music, like Dayglo Abortions was a favorite um, in the morning which he would also do in his classes, but it could other times be like Albert Eiler or like, you know, some of the like craziest jazz you've ever heard in your life. And he'd just be like, you know, handle it. Um, so the mornings were were fun for that. And what kind of kid were you? Popular, unpopular, good student, bad student? Uh, I was a good student. I really loved school. Um, and I had a lot of friends. I feel like I like... There was a lot of, I feel like I was betrayed a lot, um, which is probably more of a conversation for a shrink, although I'd like to no, get a no, little, no, but free, I'm little interested. free therapy. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to give anything back, but what did, that be, what did that betrayal look like? Like, 
you know, my best friend, um, you know, it's like you had Madonna and you had Cindy Lauper. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man, I really, you know, click with Cindy Lauper. And I actually got to play her benefit. We sang Give Me Sympathy together. It was amazing later in life. But, um, you know, the idea of girls just want to have fun. Key line in there. After the working day is done, girls just want to have fun. I was like, I love how she buried the lead, which is you have a life. You have your own money. You're like a self-possessed person who can be whatever you are. Really great message for like an 11-year-old. And And you do know that it was written by a man, Robert Hazard, out of Philadelphia. Oh, boys boys (laughs) just want to have fun. Well, however, whatever the No, 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 that does not mean I hear what you're saying. It's just fascinating. The guy had one quasi hit, uh, The Escalator of Life, which was great, but his other claim to fame was he wrote Girls Just Want Boy it was originally Boys Just Want to Have Fun. Wow. That has that does not undercut your uh It doesn't your meaning whatsoever. But okay, so you were into Cindy Lauper, everybody else was into Madonna. Yeah, well, my best friend was into Madonna, which was obviously very sexualized. I think it was around the time she's like on that boat in Venice, which was just like, what's happening? Um, And my boyfriend and my best friend, which was her, they walked me around the um, field and said, we have to talk to you. I was like, okay, like you're my best friend and you're my boyfriend. And they were like, we're together now. Um, That's betrayal. Yeah, because, and it's because like, I, you know, I wasn't sexual, right? I'm like, I'm not i wasn't so and she was i was cindy lopper she was madonna and then it was just so sad and then i like still after school i still went to her, her house because she was my best friend and then he's just calling her at her house instead of me so i feel like you know you can make a case for anything in your life but i feel like when i if you know one of the takeaways of my life from a child my childhood was betrayal so i'm very loyal and really admire that in other people too was there another instance of betrayal or that just, you know, is so big that it overshadows everything else? There have been a lot, but that's, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite lines that I quote all the time is from Michael Andrews, who produced Old World Underground. We were at the very beginning of everything, 20 years ago-ish. And he said, um, if you sell your personal life, you can never buy it back. Which, of course, at that time, I was like, what are you even talking about? Nobody even, we're playing the Silver Lake Lounge, like... There's no danger of that. And there have been so many instances where I've been, you know, tempted. And I just, my life is my own. Thank you, Michael Andrews. Okay. Just so I know, if you did sell your personal life, what would that look like? There are some some crazy stories. So I think that it would look like, um, it would be, it would explain a lot of things. But I have made the decision that I'd rather just be a writer, protect my privacy, and not let let things go. Okay, you're a very dynamic person who knows where she's going. Were you a leader, a ringleader growing up? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I'm having a memory of like, something in kindergarten where they, I think they said like, she always wants to like be the mom and the thing or whatever. They just judge you. Right. So funny reading those things. Um, but yeah, I think I, I was, I was revved up. I was ready to do some stuff. And did you have a dream at a very young age or you ultimately just went down the road and ended up where you did? It was, I mean, it's so, it's painfully earnest and genuine five-year-old, 
going to the piano, writing a song, being like, this is all I want to do. And being fortunate enough to be in this environment um, where I was just so supported to do that, even though pop music and the style of music that I write is like, it's it might as well be, you know, the biggest the the biggest rebellion of all time is to make music that is as accessible as the music that I make. Um, but that was all every it's just wild now to be me as a grown up. It's exactly what I wanted. Okay, did your parents, you know, you said you played the piano to get out of washing the dishes, but did they encourage artistic endeavors? Did they give you piano lessons? Are you totally self-taught? Um, they did. My, uh, I had a piano teacher who was not very supportive, um, which I think is also cool. She was like not impressed by the song I wrote when I was five, which I still remember that song, but uh, which I think is good. Like, whatever, get used to it. And, you know, the conservatory stuff was really hell for me that, you know, I feel like my mom really did the right thing of being like, if you show an interest, if, if you can afford it to try to support that. But when she saw, you know, what that did to me, that was terrible for me. The conservatory stuff was just like, that is not my world. Um, the judgment. So then they just, just, yeah, I guess believed in me and helped me, um, you know, made it possible for me to go to that school uh, when I was 15. And the, you know, the principal of the the school that I was at was like, you got to get out of here and help me get an audition and get in. Okay. Just going sideways for a second. So your siblings, you have two siblings and they're older than you. Mm-hmm. So were you like the baby of the family or was there very cohesive with you and your siblings? Well, it was kind of like we were two families because and I felt bad for my brother and sister because I would find it annoying because, you know, Tim was born in New York City, Beth Israel, whatever it was, 65 or something. And then they went to New Mexico and had my sister. And then they just did that for like, that was like nine years. And then they're in India and it's like the planned nine years later baby, which was me. So, and then that's when they stopped all the travel you know, all the photos up till then are like beautiful black and white photos in like Rome and Morocco and, you know, and then now it's just like you're in a generic Canadian northern town getting beat up by hockey players and going into puberty. That was what my brother and sister's experience was. So, um, but I had a very, my life was all in one place, but they were always traveling. So your sister is a news reporter. Your brother does what? He has a record store um, called Blue Streak Records, which has been amazing to watch. It's like having a line on just the amount of intel that I get. Vintage record store. He sells new as well, but he's sold vinyl for over 20 years. I think it's almost like 30 now or something. Uh, and so many times when people were like, you got to go out of business, you got to close down, it's over, CDs, this, that, the other thing. And now he's like, it's just amazing to see as vinyl is king. And he's like, I was standing here all along. And where is this store? Uh, that's in a town called Peterborough, just outside of Toronto. Right. How'd your sister end up in the news business? She was very talented. She was, as a young woman, she got on the radio. Um, I remember, like, I think she was just still in high school, even like she had a summer job or something like that. Um, and then she got into Ryerson, which is the college in uh, Toronto, 
for communications. And then she got hired really early at CFRB, which is the main news radio station. And it was still at that time where, you know, nobody would blink when you said like, men do news, girls do traffic. It was that, you know, it's all very anchorman, her whole uh, career. (laughs) But, uh, and then she got into television, had all kinds of wild adventures um, in the public eye, and now is the head of what's called W5 in Canada. It's a very respected um, investigative journalism team that she heads up and it's like prime time and she's, she's cool. Well, one has to ask, even though we've danced around it, what was in the water that these two women were uh, so intelligent and pushing forward in their careers? Was it something, you know, you know, since there are two of you and you're so successful, I wouldn't think it just happened. There must've been something your parents said or some sort of environment or something. I mean, I, I feel like my mom and dad were really cool people who really set us straight of like, again, for depending what you want to do, right? Like, you know, success obviously is only measured by what you actually want to achieve. So most obvious thing, but people forget, right? Like, I think they just distilled in us this idea of like instilled and distilled over the years. But like, you know, you're what you're what do you what's your point? You know, like do something. Um, and I then I think all three of us do in our own way contribute something as a result. So tell me about uh, going to the conservatory and what that experience was like. Oh, man. Just, you know, it's like a bad like uh, flashback footage from a tv show or something of just you know you're walking down the dark hall in like the sterile environment and the clackety clack of the heels and going into this room where there's a panel of judges this cold and air-conditioned and unpleasant unhappy looking women usually judging you just like sitting down at the piano and trying to play something that someone else wrote and i was just like this i was so like whatever magic or talent or however small it might be that I had, it was instantly extinguished in that environment. Um, and so luckily my mom was like, okay, that's not happening. So how did you end up going to school in Toronto? And what was that like? Um, that was the, you know, again, it's funny. Most people can remember like the great teachers and the terrible teachers. And so the great teachers that helped me that the one, the principal, Dr. Papke, um, cause I was being terrorized by my grade seven teacher. I skipped a grade and he just, I don't know. He was one of those people who's like, I'm going to bring her down. And it was so out of hand. And I was getting sent to the principal's office every day. And Dr. Papke was like, we got to get you, we got to get you out of here. <laughs> and he, he told me about the school. He and the music teacher helped me prepare an audition and I actually got in to go for the ninth grade. Um, but my parents thought it was, I was so young because I was only like, because I'd skipped a grade, I was like 12, 13 or something. So then we waited till 11th grade. Um, and that was just the most amazing thing. My sister let me live with her in the city and that school was just everything. They, uh, I auditioned with one of my own songs that I wrote. They let me um, develop my own curriculum around my writing. And, and there actually every all the sort of types of people that you fall into those boring traps in high school were just totally blurred because so many different people were into different things and i met my best friends it was 
I feel so lucky to go to that school. And so you go to that school for two years and you graduate and then what? Well, at that time in Canada, it was three because okay. uh, we had grade 13. Um, and then I was at a real crossroads because I loved school, as I said. Um, and I got this award, like this big award that was like most likely to achieve in the arts. Um, but I felt really weird about like studying music i just i maybe because of that conservatory stuff or i just it felt like i don't want to like i'm not trying to get a phd in like you know rock like what are we what are we talking about i want to i need to go have an amazing life and write about it like that's what you do i probably need to go meet lou reed which i ended up doing but uh i after that the program that i decided to go into is this program called arts one at the university of british columbia um which was pretty crazy and exclusive to get into this small program that was um, where you get all your credits around one theme. It was a very small group of kids. And the theme was First Nations land claims, the legal side, the ethical side, the, his the history, the geography of the, you know, the land that we were talking about. Just, just just for those outside Canada, First Nations or Native Americans in the United States, people who were here before the Caucasians came. Correct. So I had a teacher, Leslie Pinder, who was a lawyer, um, and you know it's become a very uh, big topic of reckoning in Canada in recent years. Um, at that time, it didn't; it felt quite fringy, um, but so uh, such a so perfect program for me, where I like. Here's our theme, but we're actually talking about everything else. You can learn everything under that theme, but the oral history of these traditions. And, um, but I wasn't suited to the, like, despite my claims of wanting to be this poet athlete, the Gore-Tex lifestyle and the, you know, the lattes, it just wasn't for me. Um, I don't ski. I, I was wearing Tevas. I just remember being like, I'm not myself. I don't know what's happening. Why am I wearing a Patagonia jacket? Like, I I think I got to go. I, I had my piano in a closet. I was like always sneaking into the music building to go like spend all my time in the dark at a piano in a practice room. I was like, this isn't right. So I, uh, I decided to pivot and go to Montreal where I studied electroacoustics, which was really cool, where I did like splicing tape and getting into analog synthesis and uh, finished out my degree there. Was that more on the engineering or the performing side? It was more the inside. Like I wasn't, I wasn't studying again. Like I was I always felt weird, like studying the, the thing that I wanted to do. I felt like I should study all the sort of adjacent uh, areas and then, and then just write from whatever the hell was happening. Um, so this was in keeping with that. It was like electroacoustics of of was lear was learning about like yeah as I said analog synthesis with the huge you know where you're doing patch bays you're you're cutting and splicing quarter inch tape. Um, I studied a lot of music history and there was some theory in there that some of it I got kind of into, but mostly was over my head. Um, but it was a great environment to be in. And you graduate and then and then I came back to. Uh, to Toronto and uh, met by chance uh, James Shaw, who had just graduated from Juilliard studying trumpet, and he came back and we met and then started. Well, since it's the key to the metric, 
Literally, how'd you meet? <laughs> uh, so I was, it was this place called, I mean, it's this, it's so funny as time goes on, the story is just so ridiculous and scripted sounding. So there's this venue called the Horseshoe and anyone who knows it in Toronto will be like full body eye roll. The Horseshoe is like the classic venue, the classic tavern, the place that you start it all, you know, kind of like the Mercury Lounge in New York. And um, uh, we had mutual friends that were playing. We were introduced by this guy, Joe Phillips, who's a really great musician. And I was leaning on the pool table and Jimmy came and leaned on the pool table. And we both sort of proceeded to uh, make a concise list of all the things that we thought weren't working about the Canadian music industry, um, the band that had just played, uh, the future of music, all the things. And you know sort of committed to this life together um right then and there and said we got to move to new york which we did hey guys you know what this playground could use a wine country huh a redwood forest would be cool ski slopes wait did we just invent california discover why california is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay. So this was also a romance, correct? Yeah. And how long, or to this day, did the romance last? Um, I feel like I need to ask him. Again, this also counts as a measurement, by the way, which we've established, full disclosure, I'm terrible at. So we, what was that, 98? Um, right, so it's like, until my father passed away, we were together. And then- Was that- the, which was 2003. Was that a triggering event, your father yes. passing away? Yes. W what was going on there? I Everything just fell apart. I mean, it was like the end of my youth, the end of the whole point of everything, which was his mind and 
the story that you know is being created um, as a result of the work that he'd done and the pe- the the world that he'd showed me, um, and the way that I that I found out, um, which was just you know we just finished our record. I'm at a at the Kinkos at Beverly and whatever in L.A. and um, photocopying flyers for our next show. And I was actually there with a friend. And at the time, it's hard to believe, like Jimmy and I shared a phone, a flip phone. Um, but I would use the landline at the Kinko's all the time because they had those phones there and you could just use it. Um, and I called Jimmy about something like else, just being like, you know, uh, hey, what time are we all getting together to celebrate the end, recording the record, or the finishing the album? And he's telling me stuff. And he said, by the way, your sister called and left a message. She said, it's really important. That's all. Really important. (laughs) And so I'm like, okay. And I'm with my friend and photocopying stuff. And he suddenly, um, apropos of nothing, gets this really weird look on his face and says, something really bad is about to happen and I have to get out of here. And I was like, okay, you're, I mean, you've always been kind of a weirdo, but that's pretty weird, but okay, catch you later. And he's got this like terrible look on his face and he leaves. Um, I keep photocopying whatever. And then I'm like, all oh, right, I should call my sister back. So I've used the landline as I do. And I call her and she just tells me that he's dead. And <laughs> like, you know, I went into complete shock. I couldn't remember my address. I couldn't remember any phone numbers. I was on the ground in the Kinkos. And people, sadly, humanity, people just fully walking by. Like nobody was like, oh, this person seems like they could use some assistance. Um, and, I, and I was like completely incapacitated and I saw the back of this this guy and I, for whatever reason, was felt like that I could connect with that. And I stood up and I just said, can you help me? And he said, yes. Um, and I said, okay, well, I don't know where I live and I don't know like who I am or what. I don't know. Wh- I, I don't know what's happening. And he was Canadian, <laughs> believe it or not. And he and his girlfriend, uh, walked outside with me and I a lot of this I only remember because we later like had them come to shows and we were eternally grateful to them but they I guess got me to remember uh Jimmy's phone number so then they call him and then he gets to have the same complete world destroying experience of being like you know what just happened and then uh he came to get me we went back to this place we were renting we walked in and the whole place smelled like my father's cologne the whole place was just like cologne um and then and then it was like I was on a plane and that was just like the end of my youth the end I could you know Jimmy and I tried but I for whatever reason we just couldn't get back to whatever innocent sort of thing we'd had it just it just broke and then all the shows were happening constantly on tour 
like very unhealthy. Um, and I was just basically throwing myself off the top of <laughs> like speakers or whatever else. I just, I was so self-destructive. It was in- insane to me that I'm here able to like go for a run and have nothing broken. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, that how was did bad. You, how did your father die? Um, Just a very sudden heart failure. So uh, definitely sudden. So you go to New York. Now, needless to say, to stay in New York, there's issues of a green card, et cetera. So how do you end up going to New York and staying in New York? And what do you do in New York? Well, I've always had an American passport and Jimmy had a green card. So how did you have an American passport? My parents are both American. Okay. So the fact you're born in New Delhi and you never lived in America, it doesn't matter. You have an American passport. Vassar, Michigan and, uh, you know, Brewer, Maine, my parents. Okay, great. So you're in New York. What's the plan? What do you do? The plan is to survive. Um, not easy. We had a, we were lucky to have a place to stay um, that a friend had lent us on 7th Street between A and B. That was pretty great. And it was like, okay, it's going to be hard. Hit the pavement. Got to get a job. You know, going out there. I'm like, okay, I got all my resumes. You know, I'm going to wait tables. I walk around the corner. I walk into Cafe Orlin on 8th Street. I hand them my resume and they're like, great. I leave. By the time I get back to the place, they've called, get home at the end of the day, they've called and I'm hired. So it wasn't at all <laughs> like, you know, and Cafe Orlin is a legendary spot that I feel so lucky to have worked at. And I actually stayed in touch with the, the owners um, of Vigdor uh, for, for years. So it was that was it that was the hustle and then the hustle was where the hell are you going to live um and sadly at that time it became clear that we were going to have to go to brooklyn or even worse it looked like it was going to be williamsburg which the taxis wouldn't even take you across the bridge and i'd finish work i'd have to lie and then change my destination because otherwise they wouldn't start the meter um so we're trying to find something we're trying to find something and jimmy saw you know at that time it would be like a poster with the numbers on the bottom that you break one off and call the number so uh jimmy finds something like that and it's for this like ridiculously huge not for human habitation um warehouse kind of space strangely is on the l train first stop on the l train in the shape of an l over a trucking company sheridel trucking um and he reaches out to stanley and Stanley's like, sure, maybe I'll let you get the get the lease on this place, but can you take my dad to uh, the dentist? And <laughs> can you take my dad? He's got a he's got an eye appointment. Can you take him? Like Jimmy drove around Stanley Green's dad um, until I guess Stanley got a good enough vibe, and then Jimmy was in the position of having to pull together all these tenants because it's not like we could handle the rent, but it's got all these spaces. It's like rooms supposedly for human habitation two bathrooms and just like raw space of rooms um metropolitan between bedford and Driggs. so one of the first people that shows up to move in is nick zinner um with eugene chun which is a she was an amazing visual artist i'm sure she still is um and then a hilarious cast of characters ensued um including friends of ours members from stars chris seligman um moved in 
future members of TV on the radio, members of Liars. Um, and, you know, whatever people said about the 60s, this was the opposite. It was like, everyone was just like, we got to get, we're so motivated because we want to get out of here. Um, you know, heated by oil, this huge truck would come up, but you could, there was no way to like see when it was running out. So we would just all be living in terror through the winter of like any minute now it's going to run out and we'll have no idea how much it's going to cost or when it's going to be. And then it would just be like, and sure enough, you're out. And Jimmy would have to go knock on everyone's door and be like, I need 300 bucks uh, from each of you, you know, to like fill the tank and uh, the sound of trucks revving underneath. But amazing time and amazing start. And then uh, we met Josh and Jules in that in that window, too. Okay, so tell us about the music end of it. Well, we were doing uh, our sort of like bedroom electronic stuff, a lot of which is represented on the album Grow Up and Blow Away. Um, we had no live existence whatsoever. We were just into recording, recorded music. Um, and kind of this like, uh, there's an innocence to it that I love when I listen back. Um, and we got a lot of interest out of the UK. Um, and this manager invited us to come and like, just like, he was like, move here. I'm going to get you a publishing deal. I'm going to get you a record deal. You don't even need to play a show. People have heard these demos, which is a word I'm now allergic to, um, demos. And uh, come on over, I'm going to make you a star. And we were like, great. <laughs> and we uh, both quit our jobs. Jimmy was working at uh, Diner, which is like the really cool restaurant in uh, Williamsburg. Again, it hadn't been there before, but it was like, you know, it's like that time in Williamsburg when like, the white stripes was just blaring out of someone's window as they drove by. And like, you know, the strokes were just like playing such great music and cool stuff was happening. Um, so, but we were like, okay, we're going. Um, and it was amazingly fulfilling in the fact that we did get this publishing deal that, that was a good deal, believe it or not, and did support us through what would, what, what would come, you know, but the whole process of the demos for the record labels thing was was pretty onerous and I was pretty allergic to that. And uh, we ended up having to come back. And even though I quit my job at Cafe Orlin, luckily I wasn't a bridge burner because when I humbly was like, because they were all like, good for you, you're going. Like when I came back, they just said, no problem, Em. You got a shift on Thursday, you know? Um, and that's when we were like, we got to start a band. Yeah. Couple of, couple of questions. How long were you in the UK? Uh, so we went in to that. It was like, it was like a year and a half. And did that publishing deal end up haunting you in the future? No, it actually was a good deal. I mean, as much as a publishing deal can be a good deal. Um, but no, I mean, we're well out of it. Um, and it gave us at least some infrastructure um, and an office that I could mail my CDRs out of in uh, Los Angeles. So, <laughs> Okay, so you come back to New York. Do you stay in the same place in the L? We did, which also hurt because we had all our, we had to, we were waiting for all our furniture to be shipped from London because we'd like, we went there, we got a publishing deal and we got this beautiful place on Charlotte Road. Again, kind of like Williamsburg before Shoreditch completely took off. We found this cool place um, and bought a bunch of furniture. And we were like, this is where it's all going to happen. And then had to face the fact that it wasn't. Um, but happily, years later, 
on um, our album Art of Doubt, we did a mural campaign called Is This Dystopia? That was just the question that we put to the world. We did it in London, New York, Los Angeles, Toronto. And unbelievably, we get, we're on the promo trip. This is like 2018. And the mural, if you're looking at the mural, you can see the window of the apartment, of the loft that Jimmy and I had on Charlotte Road. It was like the most unbelievable place and and connection to the past I have really ever experienced. So I, I have no no qualms about that time in London, but it hurt. It was it was a big fall. So you're back in New York, you're working your day gig and you say you gotta put together a band, flesh that out. So we played a uh show at oh man. It used to be the place under the a Fez Cafe, under the Time Cafe, which has now been a million other things. I think it's the Lafayette now. Um, and we, it was just me and Jimmy. Um, we had been, as I think from our previous conversation, I mentioned, you know, doing our own kind of like CDR mix uh, distribution campaign. So some people in New York knew our songs. Um, and we luckily knew sam who worked at beacon's closet um sam who would go on to be and i believe of course was at that time the drummer in interpol uh his wife owned beacon's closet he worked there they had a record section jules who became a big part of our lives was friends with those guys so sam would sam would stack stock our uh, cdrs in there so jules got a hold of it um allegedly this is, this is as the story has been told to me so then we play this show fez cafe terrible there's no one there except for really jules and i think a couple other people from the loft were there i can't remember no nick wasn't there because we played it just me and jimmy jimmy was on the drums and we were not happy with how, with how that went and we went back you know after the gig to this place called black betty where Unitar were playing, which is Nick and Karen from Yeah Yeahs, that was their um, acoustic thing. So they're playing, and we're just like hanging out, and this guy comes up to us, who's Jules, um, great looking guy, and he comes up and he's like, "Man, I I'm I love I love that show. I love you guys. I know all your songs. I love it." And Jimmy's, you know, so dark, so discouraged as we are both, and he's just like, "Great, well, join the band because we need a band." Jules is like, great. Jimmy's like, amazing. What do you play? And he said, drums. Um, and so we're like, fine, cool, done. And then later we find out like through the sort of like grapevine of like Williamsburg and New York music people, they're like, you don't realize, you have no idea who that drummer is. He's insane. He's like the best drummer in New York. You just landed this guy. And sure enough, to this day, I'm just like, who is this guy? Trained himself in a bomb shelter he built in Texas. Um, and he and his, and Joshua Winstead, the bass player, had moved to New York similarly as Jimmy and I had, like sort of as a duo looking for their other half, and they found us. So you can see why I'm so committed to my band. Good people. Absolutely. So you now have a drummer. What continues to happen, and how do you end up in L.A.? So we are we have the drummer. We are we're practicing, we're trying to get stuff started in New York. And then September 11th uh, happened. And 
it seemed like we should go to Canada. And um, so we did. And Jules came with. He actually uh, got together with his still wife, um, who worked at the same place as Jimmy, like right before we left. We were like, what did you just do? It's like, I'm going to go like, I'm going to join the circus. But also, I just found the love of my life and bless them. They've stayed together. They have their daughter. They have their whole life. They've they did it. I'm so amazed. Um, but so we came here. And then from here, we realized we had to go back to the U.S. and that L.A. was the spot for us. And you go to L.A., what transpires? Um. Well, we had some good and bad luck, but more than that, I feel just adventures that make me so happy and moments of, you know, I still have feel incredulous about things that went down, like Alex Luke, for example. So we get, you know, we're just, we're burning CDRs. Um, no one's got any money. We're just playing and trying not to spend money and like eating expired power bars from the 99 cent store and just committed right and trying to get a gig trying to get something off the ground and somehow alex luke i think it was somehow with this like cdr campaign i swear he got his hands on one of these cdrs with the song combat baby on it and reached out to us by email and we became friends and he hired us at what was then the new legal Napster. Um, he hired the four of us to do <laughs> QR, which at the time we had no understanding of what was going on. It was all the companies on a daily basis were selling their catalogs to be digitized, right? And we were doing quality control just to confirm that the track names were the same as what they were supposed to be. And every day there'd be a new, whole new wacky, be like, oh, cool. We're basically just like listening to all this music, but zero, you know, uh, altitude of understanding of what, how significant this moment was. Um, Alex Luke went on to head iTunes, which made sense. Um, but around that same time, he, I believe it was him who sent Combat Baby to KCRW, but I might be getting it backwards. It might be that KCRW played it and he heard it on KCRW. He had a radio background. But at any rate, in that period of time, you know, we got these legitimate, you know, no one's, no one's doing anything for us, just our own lives playing out. Our song is on the radio and we're all making 10 bucks an hour, the four of us in this room uploading basically ruining the world by uh digitizing everything that's ever been recorded by anyone um and then around that time we were we were playing you know terrible shows in like santa monica for people in beige shorts it wasn't our scene um and somehow by good fortune manish raval was at one of those shows and connected us as i recall with this guy who did um, shows at the Silver Lake Lounge. And that was the beginning, is we did a residency at the Silver Lake Lounge. Then Michael Andrews came and heard us play. Then he and Andy Factor pulled together an amazingly 
made it possible for us to make Old World Underground um, in 2003. And then and then we had we had a real foundation because the band was solid. We had our fans. It was small, but it was real. We had our identity. And, you know, Michael Andrews, like the kind of producer and Andy being people who were so in support of us creating whatever we wanted to make. It was so weird what we made. And they they loved it. So you, you know, in hindsight, it looks like traction out of the box with that record. What was it like on your side of the record? Well, you know, back to the reality of losing Paul Haynes on the day that we finished the album. I'll never know. And you're right. It's interesting when you look back and you see, you know, when you try to make a cohesive story come together, it does sound pretty like it was playing out pretty well. Um, it, you know, it's, it's fine that it was hard work. It's supposed to be hard work, but that moment, I just, it's just hard for me to, to have any way of evaluating. Cause I feel like I just, I, I don't know. I just checked out or something. Um, I could not, I did not cope well with that. And in retrospect, in my own education now, a bit more in, you know, the way that trauma affects the body and all those considerations, I realized it was the way that I found out more than the fact of what happened. And I think that feeling of like, at any second, everything could just be lost is it it causes hypervigilance and anxiety and you know all these unpleasant sort of chemical reactions like even talking about it, I feel like it's like surging through my body this like fight or flight or like just you know you want to run screaming because you have no control um so that's that really colors my ability to to remember what that time felt like are you still hypervigilant and anxious today it's a lot better. I have uh, I have techniques um, and philosophies that I I hope are useful since that's my point. Um, useful to other people, and I think they're in the music. the The idea of the music as a sort of salve, um, acknowledgement of legitimate anxieties, but also a recognition that if you can't function you know, no amount of concern for the well-being of yourself or others or, you know, spiraling thoughts. You're not, you're not, you can't, you can't, if you can't function, you can't function. So um, I do feel like I'm on the other side of that. I hope. What exactly is the technique? Uh, Well, it's as much as anything, it's like a shift in my approach to my life, which is, expressed very much on this new album but so it's the sense that the scope of your control is actually incredibly small and that reckoning with that is is the first step to a really fulfilled and beautiful life whereas you know feeling this sense of the vast realm of of all you can control it's everything what you can control is so minute that that's the place to be in the seat with your hands on the wheel prepared to make decisions as you need to make them but with very limited powers um and there was actually a book that i found incredibly helpful even though it's sort of coming at it from another angle but uh oliver berkman four thousand weeks 
time management for mortals. Because his, you know, his whole thing is that's how long a life is. It's 4,000 weeks. And some people might find that depressing or like, don't tell me that. I don't want to, you know, to me, that's totally consistent with this philosophy I've adopted of what can I actually do? It's so much and it is so little. So that's sort of a, the gist of it. So the first record comes out. There's some action. To what degree do you play live at that time? And how does that turn into the second record? We constantly toured from that point on. Um, we had an early break, which was somehow, actually, I think it was a friend in Toronto who's an actor, played a song for someone. But Olivier Isaias, uh, the French director, had a film called Clean, starring Maggie Chung. Um, and he needed a band to play a scene at the beginning of the film have a, and have the song in the, in the movie and play a scene. And he'd worked with Sonic Youth uh, previously, who we absolutely admired and continue to admire. Um, and they loved Dead Disco and cast us in this movie. Like we have lines. It's very entertaining to watch, at least to me. We, the movie starts with us, you know, talking. We play the song Dead Disco. And then as a result, very early, we had this like beautiful moment of feeling very famous in Paris around that time. And that was great. Like we went, we were, it was such interesting people. Um, we were at the very beginning. We didn't have any clothes. Like, you know, Agnes B gave us clothes. It was people gave us stuff because it was like, Jesus, you know, what are you wearing? <laughs> we were like, I have no idea even what to wear. Um, I think around that time I had one stage outfit that I just washed in a sink and wore every night. Um, so that was a really amazing moment. And we just continued to develop the live show, which I think was getting better. Um, and we did, uh, you know, some interesting stuff in LA where it was like a little more stylized, a little more stylish, a little more fashion, you know, nylons paying attention, stuff like that. Um, and we, the, the pivot point, I think that brought a heavier sound into our consciousness, sort of out of necessity was, um, we were playing this John Kerry benefit in Miami, which will tell you the rough timeline. Um, and it was super swish and we're staying at the standard and everyone's stylish and, you know, bar, bar, table service, all that stuff that we was new to us at that time. And we had that show. And then we were starting this Canadian tour with this band called Billy Talent. Um, and the first band, we were, we were the main band. The first band was um, this band called Death From Above, 1979. And we were like, great. We're just continuing touring. It's going to be great. We fly from Miami to like, of, uh, as I recall, like a smallish town in Quebec, um, and the province of Quebec is, has its own, you know, identity as a result of the French language, obviously. Um, so feeling really out there and very high contrast to the kind of shoulders we were rubbing with, like hard rock, cold, tough people, not the band Billy Talent and not the band Death From Above 1979, but the human beings who were assembled were very tough and we then proceeded to get bottled and heckled to almost to death um, <laughs> to the point that 
Ben um, on that whole tour of Ben as a singer and Billy Talent, he would come out and say, you guys, you gotta, you gotta go easy. You gotta go easy on metric. Like, you know, metric fans are getting beat up in the audience. <laughs> but I remember I had this like, so indie, you know, like masking tape. I'd use masking tape to write like love on my sweater, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like your cutoff socks or your wrist things. Like it's so indie and so like not in the real world, you know, so like art star. And I remember being on stage at one of those shows and just seeing the 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 like masking tape peeling off of me. Like there, this is terrible. The women were the worst, which was heartbreaking. I was like bawling on stage, and they're calling me every worst word. And we just powered through, and it was the best experience you could ever have as a band. At least for us, we were like, nah, and. They were right. We were not good enough. And even though they were just being loyal to, to Billy Talent, but we learned at that point, the energy from the stage will always be more than the energy from the crowd. It doesn't matter how big the crowd. The, we reversed it. Um, and then we made we came off that tour and then we made the album Live It Out, which is just blistering like rock wrist, you know, because we needed the armor. And that was the other kind of concept that came out of that was like songs as armor, um, which I still use because it's like, oof, I'm going to need that, you know, to cope. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Now that record, you know, ends up having a lot of success, certainly in Canada. So, you know, one of the parallel stories in Metric's career is it's always been independent. 
But at that time, were you independent by choice or independent because none of the big people wanted to invest in you? Well, we it's and in fact that was when we were with um Last Gang. So, you know, and we the in those early days is like the license with um Everloving, which was, you know, uh Mike Andrews and Andy Factor and the um Last Gang. I mean, Chris Taylor, that was amazing. He started this label basically to put out metric. Um because yeah, we you know, the combination of shared disdain, I think, of for me, I just these guys in the music industry, I was like, no. And I think it's better now, but you know, they being told like, yeah, you could be the next Macy Gray or whatever. I'm just like, this is uh, this is never gonna work. Um, but what but if we do it ourselves, it's gonna work. And we had that confidence. But we definitely had help. I mean, Chris Taylor put out that record he helped us get i think he played us for ben um of billy talent and death from above was also on his label that was the first time we were in a tour bus was with those guys so you know it was it was a short-lived connection and we also always contractually protected our independence but um at that time i didn't feel any sense of like oh i wish i was on a major label or anything i think i think we really let that go after england and to this date, have major labels sniffed around? Yeah, like we had, you know, it's a now it's actually kind of a mutual respect vibe, I feel like. We've had great chats with Jimmy Iovine and Tom Wally and all those guys. And like, you know, it, it's always a funny thing where like, I think Jimmy Iovine was like, you know, well, if you ever want to work at Interscope, I was like, totally, you know, um, like around Fantasies, which was our most mainstream success, I suppose. Um we went in and he, he wanted to meet with us and, you know, he's like throwing around like the Pharrell remix idea, like, we're, you know, the stuff that you should do. But it's like, you know, I like no doubt as much as the next guy. We're not no doubt. We're not a packageable entity like that. Um, and contractually, it's like there is no amount of money the guy was going to give me. Like, literally, there is there was there is no amount of money that would make it make sense, um, which I know sounds extreme. But again, like kind of you know, the idea of a life philosophy, if your life is like, you're trying to, you're trying to retire. Like if you're trying to like do it and then stop doing it, then you might want to just sell off anything you can sell off. But if your goal is to own it and live it and have your own life, it just doesn't make any sense. And they could see it and we could see it. So later in my career, I actually enjoyed those conversations because I can tell, I mean, they're trying their best, right? They're doing their thing. And um, I feel like they respect that I've done it my way, you know? But are you frustrated at all as much success as you've had and the inroads you've made is part of you say, hey, I want to be bigger and I wish I had help? Well, again, like philosophy, right? Um, we Right now, it's, a, it's an interesting time to be chatting with you about this because right now we feel really happy with 30 tigers like david macias obviously mutual friend like that's your new distributor label services company that's right and what he's doing and the way that they're doing it is kind of the thing i feel like we've always been looking for because we're team players like we love you know we've always put together our own ad hoc teams um and it's just always with the music industry the terms of these contracts right it's just so unpalatable to us and our, the way that we run our business and make our work. 
So we'll have to see. I'd love to like do a check-in on this, how it plays out with 30 Tigers because for this album so far, the setup and we just all comes crashing, just got to number two in Canada. Hopefully next week before the release, we'll get to number one. The It feels like we got we got people, but they're not telling us what to do. They're telling, they're, they're facilitating what we want to do. So, you know, I, I, the question of being bigger is like, it's, it's funny to me right now because I feel like with the data obsession that we're all, it seems like it's a global addiction now in all, in all ways. Everyone's just like tallying up everything, right? Like there's a soccer mom who's tallying up how many likes she got on like her cupcake photo. And, you know, every artist is tallying up how many streams they have on Spotify and the other platforms. And it's like, it's fun and it's addictive and it's all these things, but it's like, I really think we're in need of a reckoning of like, what are we actually tallying here? And it's cool. Like, but recognizing on Spotify, you're, you're tallying how many times your song has been listened to on Spotify. This is from someone who's added, we've added a million and a half listeners in, I think less than a year. So I'm super happy. It's going great, but I'm not under the illusion that that data is, is the tally of all things of value in my existence. You know, TikTok, we're into it. It's cool. We're like coming up with stuff to do. We're enjoying it. You know, I'd rather do that than go sit in some guy's office or try to please the head of a record company. It's cool. If I don't want to do it anymore, I won't do it. Um, but again, it's like this like sort of frothing at the mouth, sort of like casino atmosphere around, you know, success in these measurements that I guess I, I have chosen a different way of looking at success. So how do you look at it? Well, Mental health, physical health, love, health of the band, quality of the work. So from from our perspective, again, how can you evaluate quality in the world? As we know, lots of things are huge. Lots of things suck. You know, chicken McNuggets, they're everywhere. I don't I don't think anyone's under any illusion of a Michelin star, right? So for me, for our values and what we want to accomplish, every day of my life is one step closer to the artist that I want to be. The work on Formentera, the band is playing better than we've ever played. We're doing what, you know, to the extent that anybody cares. I hope they do. Uh, and from all, you know, measures that we're seeing, it seems like they do. But that's that means things are working out, you know. Um, and there's like love in my life with my band and my and my family. And like, it's not all being destroyed by this obsession, you know, this idea of like, you know, fame at all costs. I feel like the last standing, like lover of privacy or something when people just rattle off all these things about TikTok. It's like, you want to be this, you want to be that. It's like, I don't know, maybe like, I get that somebody wants to be that, but not if you're someone who loves like being in the woods and going on a hike. Like, yeah, maybe you want to do some cool shit on TikTok and that's not your whole purpose, right? Like, not everyone wants to be the most famous person ever. Okay, although I've yet to meet an artist who didn't want more people to listen to their music or be exposed to their art. Yeah, I mean, that would be completely disingenuous to say, like, of course you want people to hear it. But, you know, I guess I just, it's not about being nostalgic, but it's more about, like, reminding people that that feeling before we were all in this kind of coliseum of like data and living online where everyone's looking at everyone's everything, 
Like you could be a really cool band and you don't have to be like constantly reminded that someone's playing an arena. It doesn't matter. Sometimes you want to go to an arena. It's really fun. Go see a huge band. It's great. Sometimes you want to see an art rock band like Metric do something really cool in a theater. Like that. that's that's more the the spirit of it. It's like, imagine if your favorite restaurant you know, when you go to your favorite restaurant that you love and the chef is so good and it's like hard to get a rezzo because it's so awesome, you don't go and have that meal and think, ah, oh, this is amazing, but I wish that they had like 75 franchises. It just doesn't work like that, you know? So I think it's more, my state of mind is like, if it can grow and be what it is, those are the terms, you know? If it can, if it can be that the mainstream comes to us, which has been the case to a large degree, then I'm down. We're we're totally cool. The you know, everyone's welcome. But the singular quest of just more and more people and more and more numbers, that just doesn't sound like a good life or even a good party. Like I don't know. There's you want to be in an audience that knows why they're there. Um and I'm sure like my whole team has a different agenda in terms of yeah, let's just get as many people as possible, but it's not really what drives me. Now, this is a business where you really can't predict the future. Um, a band like yours has a certain number of fans, but in the back of your mind, you're saying, well, you know, if we don't interact to be, if we don't interact with our fans or we, they don't like our record, they may not buy our tickets and the whole thing could fall apart. Yeah. Is that in the back of your mind or you just say, I'm going to do what I want to do. The chips will fall where they may. I mean, I got to say it's the latter. Like we're, you know, we're so hardworking. We're so driven. We're down. We're like doing all this stuff. But if, if, there, if the arc is the arc and it changes so far, it's only grown consistently and beautifully blossomed throughout my life. And if at some point it's like we fall off a cliff, then I guess we'll be like, well, that happened. But you know, I guess this is sort of speaking to the anxiety piece too. I mean, it's just like, if it all falls away, then I guess I'll do, I'll deal with that at the time. But in the meantime, it's like focusing on all the beautiful artwork, but obviously the music first, but then all, you know, all the beautiful artwork, getting all these things going, getting the staging going, taking care of all, like being out there on all the platforms, doing all the stuff. It's like a dance, right? And like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And knowing me and Jimmy, we will 100% keep going. We own a beautiful studio. The band is great. And I just, I feel like I, I my role right now is to put a little bit of like, like mellow confidence in some people of just like, guys, what you have might be pretty good, you know, including in our audience. Like, I feel like people feel so inadequate. It's like hellish. Everything you look at is somebody just having more of whatever you're supposed to have than you. It's like, how how are people supposed to function? There's got to be a place of like, damn, this is actually pretty good. You know, like, let's enjoy this. I, I feel like that's going to be my vibe um, on this cycle. I hope I can keep it up. Okay. You know, I grew up in the era where the Vietnam War and people went to Canada to avoid the draft. Having been to Canada a zillion times now, I would go to Canada in a minute. Canada's got a lot of advantages over the U.S., like a social safety net. But certainly when I grew up, you know, you could have a minimum wage job and pay all your bills. 
That is not the case now. So to what degree are you looking forward monetarily? Are you consciously saving money? Do you think about money at all? Do you think about money when you spend? How does that factor in? Yeah, I mean, I think about money all the time, like everyone else. We deal, you have to deal. Um, I run a company. So a lot of my consideration is recognizing that I need to keep everybody on salary and I need to keep, you know, this studio running. And, um, you know, I try not to focus too much on the fact, like when I'm writing where you're like, you know, it really is, it is such an amazing and ridiculous craft and dead thing to de- dedicate your life to of like, you know, help I'm alive. I tremble, you know, those couple chords and that thing. I mean, that's, that's, 90% of, you know, of, of a, a lot of equipment and various things. It's like the songs have paid for the life. The songs I write have paid for my life. So, you know, we're pragmatic in terms of our business. We have a whole team. We're like keeping this thing afloat. Um, but on a personal level, like, you know, I just feel like you don't, you know, whatever the stupid kill the golden goose, whatever. I don't, I just want to be capable of writing and you know i have a place in the woods which had already happened with covid where it was i got it in case everything went to hell it did i went there it was great if if i have to shrink my life down it will still be so such a rich life with you know my own water and a a piano on each floor so that's kind of how i gauge the financial side i'm i'm more into like you know pouring money into making the metric shows great you know continuing to sort of defy gravity in our weird way than than being too worried but um professionally we're yeah we're very we're practical we're practical how many people are on the payroll uh well the band's been on salary for i mean over a decade um, and then we have all our services. Um, so, you know, business manager, couple of lawyers, accountant, obviously our manager, obviously our agent. Um, I have a person that is, is essential to my health and happiness who I do all the social media stuff with. We have a great time together. Um, she's on salary. Um, we have a day-to-day person that we're like, nowhere will we go without him we just switched to new management and we're like this guy's coming with us so he's on as well um then we have a day-to-day guy in in uh toronto as well so you know 10 or 50 something like that i can't i can't do math you know that bob but some people how'd you hook up with matt druin and how did that end up helping your career um that was just i have a big grin when you say his name because what a legend and you know, so great. Um, he, the, I can't, I don't remember how we met exactly, but the visual I have is when we, when we had left New York in 2001, um, God, these timelines are so crazy, but I guess it must've been that we still had, Jimmy still got to rent that place later, but all the way into like 2004. So around 2004, um, we met him and we was this place was on above a bank. And so there was this huge safe and Matt just came in and sat cross-legged on the safe. 
and, you know, proceeded to make us so much money over the next decade. It was always just such a classic image. Um, but he is a uh, he ran DKD for a while. His like whole resume is pretty impressive. But he was always really interested in tech. He was always interested in being disruptive to and, you know, not everyone loved this about his work in the music industry. He's now left the music industry. So he claims. Um, but he was really, you know, like me, just felt that there were inherent systemic flaws and just the boilerplate contract that is presented as a premise for a career in music. He was just right there with me of like, this is a bad business model and no one should ever sign this. And he was like, I'm going to go over every single thing with a fine tooth comb and we're going to figure out a way to do things differently. And thanks to him for Fantasies, which was the album after Live It Out, uh, we owned everything, put it out ourselves, and per- that album performed the best. We did really well at radio in um, in the U.S., which is like unheard of. He's got all the stats of like, no one's ever done it without a label or whatever. He loves like the sizzle reel vibe. Um, and we just, we ended up having such incredible uh, uh, success in that period of time. And simultaneously, the world was changing toward tech. He's was close friends and still is with Sean Parker. So we got to have like, you know, an inside view, uh, which is not for the faint of heart, um, into tech bro existence and some friendships there you know he hilariously to me we were playing um probably around 2011 something like that uh we were playing this thing in new york where inexplicably patty smith was opening for us it was this thing at milk studios and uh so it's just like already kind of a funny memory a standing side stage where Patty's about to go out and she's just like, God, it sounds like hell out there. And like, it's going to be okay. Um, and then, and then Matt Brock brought uh, Daniel Eck, obviously he started Spotify backstage. And he was like, guys, this is Daniel Eck, Spotify, you know, you should really meet him. We're like, what's up, man? Nice to meet you. You know, and we're not the, we're, he, Matt didn't like lead us. He wasn't like, you got to like kiss this guy's ass or this is your future or anything like that. He just was in, he was aware that the world was going where it was going and um, did his best to help us by making sure that we owned everything. And then, we'll, you know, we parted ways totally amicably um, right before the pandemic. Um, we got new management and, you know, it was a lot to take apart because he had the energy to be someone who would put together individual record deals in every territory, you know, so there's never a cohesive thing. He would just, you know, out of Montreal, like a lunatic, he'd like run this thing. So, you know, now that we have more uh, sane management, they're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to streamline this a bit. We're going to, and luckily that's why 30 Tigers is now in the picture. Um, But other than having to kind of get it straight, he was just like being handed our own, the keys to our own, existence because we own our material and now we can do all this cool stuff and fascinatingly jimmy said that didn't ultimately that was your one big break that really ultimately didn't pay any dividend (laughs) yeah (laughs) um that was we were approached by howard shore who i've stayed friends with um we then did the cronenberg film together after that but uh yeah they needed um someone to do the theme song he was obviously doing the score so uh, we clicked. We went out to his place in Tuxedo Park, um, which was really 
cool is like see like where he wrote all the Lord of the Rings stuff and the Hobbit hole and all this stuff. Um, and, you know, fascinatingly to me, he took, I didn't know it was going to work like this, but he took my melodies and then wrote the the themes of the score were actually derived from that song, which was really cool. Um, Jimmy struck up a friendship with Pattinson and it was, it was a great moment, you know, some hilarious red carpet moments, but yeah, to Jimmy's point, I mean, like so many things, and I think it's, it's actually to our benefit, but I guess we'll never know. It feels like it just added to the body of work, you know, and we would play, we, you know, did lots of late night with the piano and the string section doing that song, you know, but we were doing late night already. Like it kind of just was another thing that we did that kept it groovy and we kept on going. Um, but it, it did seem in retrospect, it's true. It's like, that seems like that should shoot you out of a cannon, but you know, the song's playing at the credits, everyone's walking out. What are you going to do? Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Is there anything that's happened in your career that really did push everything forward? Sort of a changing moment or has just been a slow evolution? I mean, I think it's, I unless, it's, I suppose we'd have to ask ourselves what how we're measuring that because I'm sure if we look at the data, there are bumps, you know, we can see like that the video for risk, you know, did so well on YouTube. I'm sure there's something similar like that, that we could look at objectively. Um, but to me, the things that have meant the most have a negligible effect, you know, obviously like working with Lou, my friendship with Wilner, all, all that stuff that is like the basis of my craft and 
you know, identity and sense of like, you know, now it's getting good. I have no idea if that's served us in any sort of verifiable way. So how did you meet Lou Reed? Um, that was uh, through Hal Wilner, who, as as I recall, Kevin Drew and Brendan Canning from Broken Social Scene, my pals from here in Toronto, they they were going to meet Hal about doing this Neil Young benefit in Vancouver. And they were in New York and they went to Hal's studio, which is like a hilarious room uh, full of his like, sadly, Hal's not with us anymore. I uh, just got to put that out there ahead of the out of the gate because I feel like he's still here. Right. One of the casualties of COVID, unfortunately. That's right. Um, I did really just feel like he was still alive. That was a very weird feeling. Whew. Okay. So Kevin, Brendan, they go to meet Wilner to talk about this thing. And the first thing he does, you know, in this cramped room with his speakers and all his like puppets and all his crazy like collectibles, Wilner's like, you got to watch this film. And, you know, they think they're just going to have a chat with this guy. And he sits them down and makes them watch the Escalator Over the Hill documentary, which is, of course, the making of Carla Blay's album that is my father's lyrics that he was writing in New Delhi when they had me. And Kevin is just like, okay, what's going on? Like, that's my best friend from high school. Like, she, how is that? What What's happening right now? How do you have this? Also, it's very rare hard to find and Wilner's like oh no way um that's great we you know Lou and I both we we love Emily's solo record we play it on our radio show they had the show on Sirius um and they were best friends obviously and so Kevin was just like this is too much I gotta I gotta get Em on this Vancouver show um and it was a really busy time and he actually makes fun of me because it was not easy. Like I wasn't like, Oh my gosh, I'm so lucky. Like I was like, I don't know, like Vancouver. I don't know. Maybe not. Like there's a lot going on. I'm living in New York. I'm like, I don't feel like getting on a plane. So he persuaded me. And thankfully, because then, you know, I meet Lou and the first thing he says to me is Emily Haynes, who would you rather be the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? (laughs) Isn't that the best? Uh, which maybe your listeners don't know is a line from our song, Gimme Sympathy. But, and you know, this is what I'm talking about when I say like, we got to get away from this data. There's no data collection for that. I can't, there's no spike in, you know, in the algorithm. It's like, that's the best thing ever, period. Um, Struck up a friendship. Lori's there as well. She's amazing, um, of course. And he then, uh, both of them invited me to perform at this amazing thing they did at um, Sydney Opera House. Uh, They did a whole curated festival of music. And, oh man, Bob, I feel like I'm going to cry. He, uh, Lou and I did Perfect Day together. And, uh, yeah. And then we just stayed friends. Like I did a hilarious um, Shel Silverstein thing with him in Central Park. It was like another Wilner production. You know, he's like total Muppet show, bringing together all these people. And um, I was Lou's straight man. Like I'm playing piano and he's just like ripping into Bloomberg. <laughs> it's the best. 
It's the best. And after he passed, um, you know, of course, we did the song together as well. You know, Electric Lady, he came in and sang on Wanderlust, which is on um, Synthetica. But uh, but after he passed, like, you know, Wilner and I then stayed in touch, too. And um, I came and did a tribute to Lou in the city. And then Wilner would, would keep me keep me in the loop on things like, you know, the amazing T-Rex covers album uh, that I did with them. Uh, Ballrooms, Ballrooms of Mars was my song. This crazy lineup like Bono and the Edge and all these guys are on that record. And then um, I feel like I'm just now telling the story of the death of these two best friends and it's making me really sad. But then, you know, Sheila managed to, you know, a year after we lost, I guess two years after we lost Wilner, did the memorial in New York and Kevin and I played um, Only Love Will Break Your Heart and uh, got to meet Bono in the Edge. And I have a really ridiculous picture of, as you know, we're walking in for soundcheck and there's everybody's names with their COVID tests. And it's like, Kevin Drew, Emily Haynes, like The Edge, Tom Waits, Bono. It's like, again, immeasurable, absurdist photography um, that is, I don't even know if you can call that a high point, but it's a something of uh, the wildness of life. But legendary humans that I got to cross paths with so now what am i going to do now am i going to meet oh there's always something it's just like you know i remember being in the rose bowl seeing the stones and i have an all access pass to the rolling stones so well you know doesn't get any better than that walking on the stage but you're a woman in a man's world so what's that been like uh well i think i learned from carla blay by example which again, was a little bit like finding out later that we didn't have any money because I didn't understand that, um, is I grew up thinking like, that's just what you do, is what she did, which was, you know, start JCOA records, write all of this insane music, um, all these arrangements, which I can still recognize her arrangements. And in fact, at Wilner's Memorial, they played uh, an arrangement of hers, which was stunning. Um, you know, wrote our own arrangements, um, sang the stuff and pulled together, you know, Jack Bruce from Cream, you know, with Paul Haynes from Paul Haynes. Um, and I just, you know, always felt like everything she did was unrelated. Her, She was, of course, she's a woman. Cool. But she always resisted being on the like women in jazz collections and, you know, that sort of pink ghetto thing that can happen of like you know I, I just always felt like I want to play on the regulation field right so I'm I'm a woman in a male dominated industry so I'll be a woman on that regulation field doing what I can do I haven't done well with the idea that I'm supposed to go to this other category and have everything be like a disclaimer or a caveat of like female fronted or like you know and I think some people lean into that because they, there is a way, I guess, that you can maybe garner attention in a way that serves you and works for you, which I totally respect and get. But for me, I've just always been like, what now? Can we just, can you just talk to me about like my phrasing? 
on the, you know, the third line of the second verse of track eight of my sixth album, you know, I don't, I don't really have like an agenda as a woman other than I hope that girls who come to my shows go like, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. That's basically my message, but. Okay. That's on your side. You're an attractive woman, fronts a band, has a certain amount of fame. The truth is many men are attracted to that both people in the audience and people who are famous amongst the entire population. So to what degree when someone comes up to talk to you, I'm talking about in an insider setting as opposed to just being out with the public, do you say in your back of mind, are they really want to talk to me for what I think or are they thinking about me sexually? (laughs) I mean, that's just a human question. That has nothing to do with what I do for a living. I think that's just like, and I'm sure there's a male equivalent. So I don't. Well, know I'm not sure there's a male equivalent it. in maybe in the fashion makeup world. It could be, but uh, if you are there, you're one of the few women amongst many men. So it's a little bit different from society at large, where it's kind of fifty fifty. Well, to be fair, Jimmy did always say to me once. She's like, you know, um, the problem with you is, you know you don't realize that when you stay at the bar after closing till 3 a.m., you're the only one who's there to collaborate. I was like, oh, oh, okay, right. So I think I am a bit like out of it when it comes to that, but which also works. I mean, I I like the approach of just ignoring bigotry and, uh, you know, adulation in equal measure. You know, just ignore it all. Be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So anyway, this is this new guitar. Okay. You know? The reality is, and I have personal experience with this, when a woman is extremely attractive, certainly there are men who uh, uh, observe boundaries, but there are men that might say at three in the morning, oh, that's good. Okay, clever. See you tomorrow morning. And there are other men who might say, hey, you know, let's go up to my room now. And, you know, I wish him well because I'm going to be like, sorry, what now? Oh, okay, and, let uh, me re- wish him good Let night. me rephrase <laughs> the question. Have you been in any bad experiences as a result of being a man, a woman in a man's world? Yes. And how do you, do you want me to? How do you handle those? <laughs> so sadly and i've spoken a lot of my friends about this and i think this is a generational shift that is happening um but i have been of the school kind of the logical next progression from my attitude of like i'm going to pretend that i didn't see you looking at me that way or treating me that way treating me lesser or um, as a result of some perception that you have about my gender, I've similarly been very quick to dismiss and minimize and move on from all the things that have happened. And it's a choice. I didn't really think of it as a choice. And I think probably other women that you've spoken to um, my age or older will, will tell you the same thing. There's no mechanism for really anything else it felt at the time and certainly at this point in my life I feel resilience and 
I've overcome everything. So having said that, I, I'm very supportive of this next generation of girls who they, I mean, things that we, I don't think would even register with me, they're flagging and good on them because if they have, they have the energy, they have the, they have the social language and a, you know, a sense of understanding um, that they can address those things. So I think, I think if they, they should. Um, but for me, I, I've just been like, can we please talk about my music now instead? Okay, I just want to clarify when I talk about being on the, uh, having experience with this is with a woman I was involved with, not that I was bad behavior, just men approaching her. But in any event, you know, this is also a dicey area, but the reality of biologically women have a limited amount of time to have children. Oh, certainly they can adopt, they can freeze their eggs. Do you feel you sacrifice, to my knowledge, you don't have any children, you're not married? Is the music more important? Or did you say, I want that, but I can't have it? Where do you sit on that? Um, that probably is the only question so far that sits on my Michael Andrews scale of selling my personal life, um, which is me saying in a hopefully charming way that I'm probably not really going to answer that. Um, I would just say I was married and I did try to have a family and I am not married and I do not have a family and leave it probably at that. Okay. Let's move on to today. The album is called Formentera. For those who've been to Ibiza know that Formentera is across the water. And, uh, so why is this album called Formentera? So it's funny, even though we're so early in this album campaign, I already have that little cringe, which you got to do it, right? Like I'm, we're promoting the album, but where you hear yourself about to say something you've said before, but it's cool. I just, I feel the need to preface that. Like, it's funny. I'm just looking at it right now, this book in the studio. Okay. So here it is. Uh, we are deep pandemic and not only are we deep pandemic, we are in a frozen tundra in a rural hamlet and the doom scrolling is completely out of hand and what is on the other side of that phone is really dire and disturbing friends are dying um our industry is completely gutted and predictions for worse are coming in daily uh we're in the studio and we were like, we need, we're going to need something here because everyone's, we're not well. And we got the idea to open this book that it's one of those like a thousand places to go before you die book, like dream destination books. We're like, okay, maybe we open this to a page. We'll like, it'll transport us. We'll get inspired. And we'll just, that, that's going to make, give this day a sense of shape. And we open the book and it's Formentera and Originally, we had thought maybe we'd do a different page every day or something, and it just never left that page. And that day, we wrote that song. And I'm not trying to be dramatic. I just, I can't, I don't really remember the way that it happened. It just really did feel like Jimmy played something, and I went to the piano, 
and played something and then there was something and then for the weeks that followed I just spent all this time like when I was walking when I was in the bath when I which was basically the two things that I was doing um I I would just be kind of tweaking this melody and these words that were essentially what got me to what we were discussing earlier of like coming to this conclusion of letting go of this it being unsustainable the level of anxiety that I was trying to contain in my small frame so the song is you know why not just let go you can't take a sober stroll and free my childhood dream I'm done I can't I can't carry all this um so then that was where you know we're very harsh on our work I love it we're harsh editors we had other material we're working away that song was done and we're progressing we're continuing and there was it was not front of mind um for quite some time and then as we were coming to the kind of end of the process we realized it was time to sort of reckon with all these different tunes and sure enough it was so weird but like independently everyone had this like epiphany that not only was that the heart of the record it was definitely the title and jimmy then being him was like i know what we need to do we need an orchestra we need to arrive via orchestra and have it carry us through into the next track which is enemies of the ocean and you know he says stuff like this i'm like okay like i don't know calls up todor kobakov who we worked with before our bulgarian composer friend he writes this piece it's perfect get the bulgarian art orchestra uh up and running and we record it by live cast and it becomes the heart of the record and then you know going into artwork meetings and the artwork guy comes bursting in the door and is like i know what the album's called and i know what the song it's like it's called formentera and this is the thing and i'm just like okay this is happening by consensus um but like psychic consensus so have you been to formentera and do you want to go to formentera i have i have Okay. And it's and I and I actually it's funny because now things are open, right? <laughs> and it's taken on so much significance. Um, and yeah, and we're still at the beginning of the campaign. So I'm like, oh man, I think I can't go now. Like I I think that's too it's too literal. I mean, I need to experience it as this figurative escape. You know, it's like a poor man's vacation was our whole idea. Like none of us can go anywhere. You know, and at the best of times, I don't know how many of us are yachting to Formentera, but at one point in my life, I was. Um, and so I was just really torn. Like, what do I do? Because I'm kind of like, man, I wouldn't mind going. We got this promo trip. To, we're going to London and Paris, Berlin for work. I'm like, maybe I should just go. But I, I think I've decided, you know, another lockdown notwithstanding that I at the end... It'd be really nice to just go with the band, you know, maybe by that point, the tourism board will really appreciate <laughs> our work. Actually, I was going to ask you about this. Did you ever see the um, Pink Floyd movie more? No. So, so they made a film 
and and spent all this time obsessed with Pink Floyd, best music. They they made a film and spent all this time on Formentera, and people uh, mistook it to be Ibiza. And then I had like the craziest connection of things where I discovered that that the windmill on the cover of that it's like a concert movie, I suppose, uh, is is Formentera. And then I found the club, Club Topeak is there where they played this concert in the 70s. I was like, oh man, this is our move. We're like metrics going to Formentera. We're gonna play Club Topeak. Of course, no, it's shut down because of like fraudulent tax returns or something sketchy and it's it's all not happening. But um, I love that there is a connection to it other than just being a place in my mind that I can go. Okay, the world is in turmoil. And certainly in the United States, we have this battle between right and left, and you also have it in Canada. Does music have a place in this? Because certainly in the 60s, it did relative to national, international issues. Does it have a place? And do you believe you need to play or want to play a role in that? I I think our position is like, now, um, it's more about anything that reminds people of the the shaded edges of the sides that they've chosen of the left and right. So there's a song on the new album called False Dichotomy, um, which, of course, is where you're presented with two things as though they are mutually exclusive, but they are not. And you know, and we present, you know, the idea of there are two ideas in the song that are presented of like examples of false dichotomy, you know, being who being your being true to yourself and being successful that you can't be both of those things that I would say that's a false dichotomy. And then love and hate, I would also say is a false dichotomy, recognizing the complexities, like the lack of nuance in our sort of public discourse, it seems, um, is is part of the problem and music is nothing but communication so if you know without being too on the nose either because like nothing can be preachy like i don't have any answers i have questions but i don't have any answers you know but let's all just hang out with the questions like tolerate the lack of resolution if you can the fact of the complexities try to find some commonality with other people um but the entrenched sides is just uh it's terrible and it seems to be the inertia is moving everything in those directions similar to the sense economically that the inertia of richer and richer and poorer and poorer as the middle kind of stretches and disappears is a really unnerving and um unpleasant you know way to live we gotta we gotta find another way to communicate so hopefully if anything it's that but I don't see myself like endorsing a candidate anytime soon. And you have an American passport. You lived in New York. You lived in LA. That's where you had your breakthroughs. What is really the difference between Canada and the United States? And why do you choose to live in Canada? Um, I think that's a, an exceedingly case-by-case and personal uh uh answer everyone would have in my case the 
um, the really cool thing that happened is like, I mean, I, th- I think it's from being born in New Delhi and always feeling like I'm supposed to be somewhere else, right? Like my parents were on this amazing journey, their romance, their world travels, and that it wasn't so, it wasn't supposed to be that like, so that I would then stop here. It's supposed to be that I'm supposed to do the same thing. And the really great shift that happened as I realized is like, you know, if I'm able, the world is there for me to be in and be a part of, but denying the anchor of my, what I, I honestly feel it almost like a debt to this country. I mean, and it's funny because you don't think of me as an immigrant, but I am, you know, I could have grown up in some crappy town in the United States. Said I grew up in a crappy town in Canada, but like, you know, the arts programs, the teachers I had, the friends that I made, this, you know, this country made me. And then I had the extreme privilege of also always carrying an American passport so I could participate in culture uh, in that country as well. And like, I, I need those cities, those like, particularly New York. New York is like a person in my life. Like, I just go by myself with and hang out with my friend New York um all the time but I, I you know single being being alone in the world you know single meaning not related to your relationship status but you in the world is such a beautiful feeling but I'm so happy I realized I'm no longer looking to make that anchor somewhere other than Canada and for me to actually answer your question it's because what Jimmy and I built here is so anchored with the Toronto community and our beautiful studio and our families. And um, that's just, I'm so relieved that I have stopped trying to be like, you know, the (laughs) absurdity of the idea of putting down roots in LA is like, I can go to LA anytime, get an apartment, stay there for years, but no longer with the illusion that, you know, you can grow a you know maple tree and sand okay emily thanks for being so honest and open this has been very insightful and i want to thank you for taking the time thank you bob appreciated the conversation till next time this is bob left set Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my, look at that, he is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.